Brothers and sisters, it is good to see you here this morning. We trust that the Lord continues to pour out His grace and His love and care for each of you here where we are gathered. It's a reminder of our need to pray for one another as a congregation as we do live through a pandemic and many are becoming sick. Thankfully, no one uh, has needed to be hospitalized, but I'm sure it'll be important for us to continue to pray for the families who are at home. And, and hopefully, uh, we pray that you will get better soon. And we'll continue to pray that you get better soon. Uh, but this morning, we uh, return in God's Word to Revelation chapter 19. So if you have God's Word here this morning, you can turn with me here to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, we are in this series studying the book of Revelation. And so uh, here we are returning to it. And uh, brothers and sisters, while you're turning in your copy of God's Word, I think it's good for us to, for a moment, ask the question, where is human history headed? Where is human history headed? Most people recognize that what happens in this world happens for a purpose. And everything is headed towards some kind of climax, some kind of end to this age. That's why many stories, as they're written about the future, and many movies that portray the future either show a utopian world or a dystopian world. And many of us are familiar with these kinds of stories, with these kinds of movies. In a utopian world, the problems that we live with in this world are resolved so that the future is filled with peace and happiness. It's the utopia, then, that we look forward to. But then there's also dystopian stories, where in a dystopian world, the problems we live with in this world, overwhelm us so that the future is filled with pain and devastation and gloom. So humanity in general tends to live with one of these two futures in mind. Either you have the optimism of a coming utopian world, an improved world, a better world, or you live with the pessimism of a coming dystopian world, where things become more painful, more dangerous, more scarce. Yet, both of these visions of the future miss the purpose of human history. And they miss where our history is headed. Which is why God then reveals to us what is coming and how this age will end. And we find it here in Revelation chapter 19. And so let us now read together Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Read, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. 
And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he is on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Brothers and sisters, let us again come to the throne of God in prayer. Oh, Father, this morning we are confronted with what will come at the end of the age when Jesus returns. May you help us then to see in what you have revealed our very hope so that we will not live for the comforts of this world, but will live for the joy that we will receive in the world to come. Father, please be at work among us here this morning. Oh, that your Holy Spirit will empower these words so that our minds will be renewed, that our hearts will be inflamed, that our very souls and lives will be transformed through the preaching ministry of your word. Oh, Father, speak to your people even through this weak vessel this morning. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, where is human history headed? And what do we have to look forward to at the end of this age? That Christ will return as our victorious King. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, take heart! Because Christ will return is our victorious king. And we see this again unfold through these verses in three ways. First, in verses 11 to 16, when our victorious king comes. Our victorious king comes. Jesus returns. But then second, in verses 17 and 18, we see our victorious king condemns. Our victorious king condemns. And then finally, in verses 19 and 21, our victorious king conquers. 
Our victorious king conquers. So our victorious king comes, our victorious king condemns, and our victorious king conquers. Let's then look more closely at the first of these three uh, future unfoldings that take place, right? Our victorious king conquers. And the Apostle John here has been recording these symbolic visions of prophecy from God in, in this book in order to encourage Christ's churches as we struggle and we suffer in this present evil age. Because as Christians, we have been redeemed from our slavery to sin. We have been reconciled to God through Christ's death on the cross. Yes, we still live in a world that hates God and that is hostile to Christ's church, which means that we're in a spiritual war in this age where we face persecution and endure tribulation and even suffer martyrdom. The time is coming when this opposition will intensify with Satan releasing two beasts onto the earth, the Antichrist and the false prophets. And they will unite all of the world's governmental and economic and religious powers to overcome Christ's church as the nations are deceived to join with them in following and worshiping the Antichrist. And this Antichrist rules from a city symbolically called Babylon, which represents humanity's stubborn refusal to submit to God in their sin, as well as their final effort to oppose and oppress believers of Christ through their power. The end of the age approaches. Yet, as we have seen, this great city of sin will be destroyed under the judgment of God at the end of this age, when God's people will finally be vindicated and receive justice for all the wrongs that have been committed against us. So this morning, we now come to the next section of Revelation. Remember, I've mentioned before that this book is structured as a chiasm, which works through parallel layers towards its climax in the middle. And so for those of you who are here, Hopefully you received this structure on a handout. For those who are watching this, uh, hopefully you can read this structure on the screen. Uh, but essentially you will see how the beginning and the end parallel in Revelation. And then you go inward and those two levels parallel. And then you go further in and those two levels parallel. And you go further in and those two levels parallel. And you go further in until the middle, which is the very center and climax of the book. Where we see that the, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. So here we come to chapter 19, verse 11 through chapter 20, verse 15. This section, with Christ's victorious return as king over the earth, who will open the scrolls to judge the world? And where does this parallel here? Looking up. But it parallels chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 17, with Christ appearing before God's heavenly throne as one worthy to open the scroll of God's redemptive plan on the earth. You, you start to see how this is structured. This is a very common way for uh, the biblical authors to structure what they are writing. We see the, this kind of chiasms all over Scripture. 
But brothers and sisters, we're not here to study structure, are we? We're here to see the glories of Christ. And what a glorious passage of Scripture we come to here in Revelation. Because here we witness Christ's return from heaven. After Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, Jesus appeared to His disciples before He ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God's throne as our King. But listen to what Jesus says to His disciples there before He ascends to heaven again in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. Here He is with his apostles, and we read, Now when he, that is Jesus, now when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. You see how Christ's apostles are told that he will come in like manner as they saw him ascend to heaven. And now what does the apostle John see? He had seen Christ ascend to heaven, and now he sees what the angels had said taking place before his very eyes at the end of the age, when heaven is opened and Christ descends from heaven to earth. And how is his coming here described in Revelation 19? Well, first we behold a white horse. Now, back when Christ began opening the seven seals of the scroll, which he had received from God the Father, which he was worthy to take from God the Father, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the first seal releases a white horse. And the one sitting on it went out on the earth, conquering and to conquer. This has led some to see that this first horseman of the apocalypse is actually Christ himself. But I disagree seeing a movement in these visions from the lesser to the greater. So the for, first horseman of the seals there is an instrument of God's judgment that takes place through this age where humanity's thirst for power through conquering nations and kingdoms takes place. That is what the first horseman on the white horse unleashes. This thirst to conquer nations and kingdoms. And while these political and military conquests continue through this age, here we see Christ's coming on a white horse to finally and fully conquer the nations and the kingdoms of this world through his sovereign power. So as Christ rides on this horse, he is the conqueror, the victorious king. And he is coming to earth on this horse as one who is called faithful and true. You see, unlike the rulers of this world who will fail us and let us down, listen, Jesus is faithful and true, and he will never let us down. 
because he is faithfully carrying out God's plan and bringing true justice for his church into this world. So even after all of these years and centuries, however long we wait until Christ returns, brothers and sisters, Christ will come to conquer his enemies and vindicate his people, and this will complete God's plan of redemption. This is where history is headed. But then we also read here that in Christ's righteousness, he judges and makes war. See, rebellious and unrepentant humanity will receive what they deserve as they are judged by God's law for their sin and their wickedness. Which is why no one will be able to accuse Christ of being unfair, unjust. He is righteous. And nations will receive what they deserve in justice. This justice will come through a war, through Christ's war at the end of the age. Now, I know when we think about war, it's horrific, it's tragic. We also recognize that war can be necessary bring an end to even greater evil and suffering in this world. And this is why then St. Augustine formulated the biblical doctrine of the just war theory centuries ago. But here we see there is a just war at the end of the age with the coming of Christ. And this war is necessary to bring an end to all of the evil and suffering in this world. When sin is finally punished, what a day then will come when Christ comes and returns. But then John records for us what Christ looks like when he comes. We read that his eyes were like a flame of fire, which we've already seen in the opening vision of chapter 1. And this fire represents his judgment and punishment of all since Jesus is the one who sees all that happens in this world, and nothing can be hidden from his eyes. And then, if we look up on his head, we see many crowns, since he is the king over his creation. Now, John did see Satan appear as a sign in heaven back in chapter 12, followed by the Antichrist, then rising up out of the sea in chapter 13, and they were both wearing crowns as well on their horned heads because they imitated Christ, who is the true king. But here, the true king returns. Christ's many crowns show his absolute authority. And he returns to establish his kingdom on the earth by dethroning and destroying the satanic kingdoms of this world. And as he comes, he has a name written that no one knows except himself. So this reminds us, brothers and sisters, there are things about Christ in which we will never know. While God has truly revealed himself to us, he is ultimately beyond our comprehension. 
And while believers truly know Christ through God's word by faith, there is far more that we don't know about Christ and cannot comprehend about Christ, our divine King, which is why we simply bow down in reverence and in humility before His greatness and worship. This is our returning King. And what is He wearing? John records a robe dipped in blood. His robe is dipped in blood. And many commentators believe that this is the blood of Christ's enemies as he triumphs over them in judgment. Since this is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. Yet I believe that this fails to see the full symbolism that is pictured here. Because his robe dipped in blood symbolizes Christ's blood shed for his church on the cross. The Christ's church has already been given a wedding gown to wear, a fine linen in her, for her marriage to the Lamb earlier in the chapter. And now we see Christ coming with a robe dipped in his own blood for the salvation of his wife. And while he does come with a private name known only to him, we also see him coming with a public name since he is called the Word of God. That's why in the opening of John's Gospel, the same author here of Revelation, he records, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now, this Word of God is returning to the world, which he has created as our victorious King. What a return this will be. But Christ will not return alone, will he? As here we read of the armies of heaven following him on white horses to join in his battle as he conquers his enemies. Now, are, are these armies angelic beings, angelic armies, or are they saints from heaven? Well, it's hard to be certain because both are true. Both will be present. Angels and the saints when Christ returns. But I think here it's most likely that these are the saints that are returning with Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks of our hope when Christ returns in this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 to 17. Listen to how Paul speaks of Christ's return. Paul writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So do you see what takes place? You have Christ with all of his heavenly hosts descending 
from heaven to earth, where his church then comes to join with him as he returns. This is what will come. And here Christ's armies then are clothed with fine linen, white and clean, which are the garments that have been given to the wife of Christ earlier in the chapter. Do you see then how we are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, which is why then we join in the battle with our bridegroom. We're wearing those white, cleansed garments of moral purity. Then we return and look at Jesus once more, who now has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And the sword symbolizes God's authority to rule in this world, which is why the sword is given to governmental leaders in Romans chapter 13. See, the sword represents power over life and death in Scripture. Revelation, then, began with a sharp sword coming out of Christ's mouth in his opening vision. Because it shows our glorious king proclaiming and executing God's judgment in this world through his word. Which brings life to Christ's church and death to his enemies. This is why once Christ arrives, he will rule over the nations. With a rod of iron. And this fulfills God's very promise in Psalm 2 to give his son the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth for his inheritance. Now the king has come to receive his inheritance and his possession of the nations to rule over them. And as he does, look at how his judgment against this world is described. By treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. We've already read about this reaping of God's wrath back in chapter 14, verses 17 to 20, by comparing Christ's judgment to the, the process of crushing grapes with your feet when, when wine is being made. But now we see Christ himself crushing the nations under his feet as their blood spills out through God's righteous anger against sin. And on his robe, where his sword would normally rest over his thigh, there is a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, Christ is sovereign over all the rulers in this world. Which means it's not the Roman Emperor of John's day. And it's not the future Antichrist that will rise at the end of the age, but Christ, and Christ alone, is the true King and Lord of this world. That's why when Handel wrote that great classical masterpiece, The Messiah, he turned to the central passage of this book in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, where the angels sing of Christ's return, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
But now, as Christ's return is revealed in more detail, Handel goes on to draw on this title of Christ as well. What is repeated in Handel's Messiah? King of kings forever and ever, and Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Don't worry, I won't continue. I'm not the kind of man who can sing in a choir. Brothers and sisters, as we continue, that Christ will come again. Are you longing for Christ's coming at the end of this age? Is your hope in Christ's return? Or are you focused on the things of this world? Staying busy with your immediate concerns and seeking to enjoy the pleasures of this age? Oh, how Revelation awakens us to the reality of the world we live in so that we will live lives focused on the future to come when Christ returns. So we began, as this return of Christ unfolds, to see our victorious King comes. But next, as we arrive at verses 17 to 18, this brings us to the second truth that unfolds, that our victorious king condemns. Our victorious king condemns. And John here looks up to see an angel who is standing in the sun. And this is because throughout Revelation, the sun symbolizes God's glory. This is why in his opening vision, Christ's countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And then in chapter 10, a mighty angel comes down from heaven whose face was like the sun. And then in chapter 12, the woman giving birth to God's son, Jesus Christ, is clothed with the sun. So now that Christ has come, an angel is seen standing in the sun, radiating God's glory as he calls for God's judgment of condemnation to come on the earth. And before this battle even begins, the outcome is already determined because Christ has already triumphed over Satan through the cross. He's redeemed his people and triumphed over the powers of this world. One victory were all things through the cross. Which is why the angel then calls out with a loud voice to all the birds flying in the sky. And these birds would have been the vultures, the, the buzzards, the crows, and other birds who eat dead and decaying animals. Have you ever looked out in the sky and seen vultures circling around? We usually think that means they're about to eat a dying animal below. Well, here... John says that at the end of the age, these birds are all summoned together by an angel to come and gather for a great feast on the earth, where their bellies will become filled with the remains of mankind condemned by God. And we've heard 
God's justice in judgment here described this way before. Back in the Old Testament by the prophet Ezekiel. Listen to the words of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 17 to 20. Where Ezekiel brings this word from the Lord to his people. There Ezekiel says, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to every sort of bird and every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war, says the Lord God. So this is why these birds meal is called the supper. The great God. You see then, then in Revelation chapter 19, there are actually two meals at the end of history. There's two meals. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which the saved saints enjoy. And there's the supper of the great God for rebellious sinners under which they will suffer. And listen, Either we will feast in joy with Christ or we will be feasted on in judgment by Christ. That is what Revelation 19 shows us. And look at everyone whose flesh will be eaten by these birds. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses and those who sit on them, and all people, free and slave, both small and great. However powerful people are in this world, however strong people may be in this world, however persuasive, how much prestige they may have in this world, if they are outside of Christ, living in a rebellion against God, when He returns, they will be slaughtered for their sins and unrighteousness. Everyone who gathers to oppose Christ in his final battle, out of them all, none will escape his condemnation. And this imagery, listen, it is meant to jar us. It is grotesque. You may even wonder, how could a loving God reveal such severe punishment to come against the nation? I think it's helpful here to listen to the words of Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian who explains how the ethnic warfare of his homeland helped him to reconcile God's love with God's wrath. So listen to what Wolf said. He writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? 
God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. But that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the 20th century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly or fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, but God is wrathful because God is love. Brothers and sisters, I want this graphic picture to have its full effect in our minds. Because God's justice is coming when our victorious king condemns the nation for their sins under the wrath of God. And his judgment will be like dead carcasses lying out in the open while birds pick away and eat their flesh. This is the wrath of God that such wickedness and evil in this world deserves. Do you see then why our victorious king condemns? So our victorious king comes, our victorious king condemns, and third and finally we see as this chapter unfolds, our victorious king conquers. Our victorious king conquers, verses 19, 21, and this is where the war now takes place. Now when the sixth bowl of God's judgment was poured out back in chapter 16, we read of the kings of the earth and the whole world gathering together with the Antichrist and with the false prophet for this battle of the great day of God Almighty at the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. But now we see their last stand once more revealed here as the Antichrist who is called the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against Christ and his army. As we come to these verses... Did you notice how short-lived this battle will be? Well, here we see it is over in an instant. They simply cannot overcome the superior and sovereign power of Christ the King. And so he quickly conquers them. In some ways, this is anticlimactic. The two sides are not equal. Christ conquers all of his enemies at the end of this age. 
So this is why then the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, writes about Christ's victory over the Antichrist in this way. He writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So what then happens to the Antichrist and the false prophet? Here in Revelation, we see they are captured. That after all of the miraculous signs that the false prophet used to deceive the nations, and after all of their success in deceiving people to receive the mark of the beast and to worship the Antichrist image, they all come to an end. Because both the Antichrist and the false prophet are judged by God. So do you see how God allowed Satan to raise them up in this world for a time? But that time will come to an end. And they will be cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, where they will suffer under the everlasting torment of hell. Then we come to the final verse of the chapter where we see that their armies don't fare any better. But Christ pronounces their sentence of death through his mouth and then executes the sentence against them as they are killed by his sword coming out of his mouth for their sin. The words of God's condemnation conquers the armies. And now that they have been conquered by Christ, what happens? Well, the scavenger birds no longer circle. They come down to be filled with the flesh of the nations. See, once again, we see God's justice through the lex talionis, this law of retribution, when the guilty are punished in proportion to their violation of God's law in order to uphold God's righteousness. What do I mean? Revelation, there's so much back and forth here, but it's helpful to remember back in chapter 11, verses 7 to 10, God's two witnesses are killed by the Antichrist, and their dead bodies are not buried, but they lie in the street humiliated to be celebrated by the nations. What happens here? So now that the Antichrist's armies have been killed, Their dead bodies are not buried, but lie on the earth humiliated to be consumed by the birds. What they have done to Christ's church now comes upon their own heads in judgment at the end of the age. This is why, then, I love the words of Jim Hamilton as he reflects upon what takes place. When he says, Jesus conquered his enemies by shedding his own blood on the cross. And when he returns, he will conquer his enemies by shedding their blood. So which conquest will be the one that involves you? If you rebel against him, refusing to have him as Lord and obey him as king, your blood will be shed for him. So I ask you this morning, do you join in the foolishness of this world by living as if God doesn't exist as you pursue your desires and pretend that Christ will not hold you accountable for your sinful selfishness? 
because this is joining with the world in its rejection and rebellion against God. And what we see here is that this world's war against Christ is a lost cause. It is an impossible mission that will not succeed, but will lead to slaughter under God's judgment. Which is why Christ's return as conqueror confronts us all with the question, are you ready? Are you ready? Because Christ will return as our victorious king. And similar to utopian stories, all of us who are in Christ have a glorious future to look forward to when Christ returns to usher us into the world to come. But similar to dystopian stories, all of humanity that remains outside of Christ have a gruesome future to dread when Christ returns and conquers his enemies to endure the everlasting wrath of God in hell. But for anyone here who is listening to this message, who is outside of Christ, come to him today and be saved. Be saved from the wrath of God. Be saved from the justice of God. Be saved by the love of God. It's poured out for you as sinners. And Christ died on the cross and shed the blood that you deserve to shed. Through his death. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from the wrath of God. Turn away from your sins and repentance and turn to Christ in faith. Trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Who will turn this day of his return from a day of dread to a day of delight. Because our victory in this world found in Christ who will return as our victorious king and in him we have victory in Jesus. But until then may we live with the end of human history in our minds as we wait for Christ's return. You know I love how consistent scripture is which is why we're so often able to hear from the Apostle John and then look to the Apostle Paul and and, and look to the prophets in the Old Testament. But here, as our hope is recorded through the Apostle John, revealing Christ's return, we see the same hope from the Apostle Paul who lives with this hope. As John records, listen to these words from Paul. After all of his struggles and suffering, at the end of his life, in his final letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So do you love Christ's appearing? Is this your hope? Like the Apostle Paul, when we live with this hope, we persevere in the faith, even through our struggles and suffering and the tribulation and persecution and martyrdom that Christ church faces in this age. And it's through then living in this way that we will be victorious in Christ because we love His appearing and look forward to His return because He is the one who will return at the end of the age as our victorious King. May this then give us the confidence to live by faith in all that we look forward to when Jesus comes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how wonderful this picture is that John has reported for us of Jesus' coming return as our victorious King. May we then be those who love His appearing and who long for His appearing so that we will love with the same love which we have received through Christ. Oh, Father, please, we ask that this will be such a vivid picture of what is to come, that we won't look to the utopian stories or the dystopian stories, because this story is real. This future is sure. So may we live with this future in mind. Oh, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.